I like the rambunctiousness of, of this audience. This is good. Um, hey, I'm Joe. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. I, I love the chance to be with you this morning, and I'm, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for joining us on such a beautiful day. What a, a picture-perfect day. We get like two of these every year in Michigan, so this is one of them. We give thanks for that. Um, and you chose to be with us. Awesome. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into what God has for us this morning. Father, we give thanks to you for all of the truths of who you are, that you are, are good, that you love us, that you have a, a, a desire for us to grow and mature in our knowledge of you, and you want to make us more like Jesus. And then this morning, God, we pray that you would have your way in our lives. Lord, as, as uh, you speak through me today, I pray that, God, more than anything, I would kind of fade and you would, you would take center stage. God, that you would have... Um, uh, just the transforming effect on, on our church and what you want to do in and through this body of believers. And we thank you that you have, have formed a, a family here and, um, and are continuing to do that. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I, uh, one thing before I dive in, I am uh, one of the pastors that helps out with the, uh, the college and young professional group called The Greenhouse. And um, yeah, we have, um, you can see that's our cheering section right down there. Um, and we have uh, some awesome stuff going on this summer. If you're back from college uh, in other places, maybe you've been in a college uh, in a different part of the country, we'd love to have you come and join us. Or if you're a, a young professional, you consider yourself a young professional, we'd love to have you come and jump in with us. Seven o'clock, typically seven o'clock every Thursday night here at the church. Okay, so um, we've, been, uh, we've been looking at, as Mark has been teaching through um, the big picture kind of meta-narrative of the Bible, We've called that E2E. On the off weeks when, when Mark takes a breather, I've been working through this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. When we look in the New Testament, it's called Philippians. And what we've seen over and over again in this letter is really astounding. A key theme is that you and I can be joyful people because of Jesus and his gospel. What Paul writes to this church and what we glean from this letter is that our joy isn't dependent upon our circumstances. And Paul didn't just write a, a letter with some good sounding ideas. He actually lived this out in a very powerful way. It's interesting how much we learn from watching someone. Teaching is vitally important to the life of the church, but never underestimate the power of a life well lived. And Paul gave us both. He would never want to take credit for any of this. He would point squarely at Jesus and unashamedly say that he was who he was because of Jesus' intervention in his life and because of what Jesus showed him in, the, in just giving him great grace. And because of that reality, Paul would write this letter to a group of fellow Christ followers in Philippi from a prison cell of all places. And when we're so blessed that we actually get a chance, we get the privilege of accessing this life. I mean, think about it. Think about how tumultuous the world is and think about what life would be like without Jesus. The vast majority of the people that you know live without hope, they live without joy, and they live without God. Everything in their lives is connected to their circumstances and nothing you possess from a worldly perspective can give you what only Jesus can. Look at the most successful people in every sphere of life. And, and money, fame, success, popularity, power, image, you name it. 
Nothing gives a person hope and joy like knowing Jesus. And so today we set out to glean more from God about this life he has for us. Last time we were together, we looked at how Paul said that he hadn't arrived yet and that he was pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of him. He was letting go of the past, he, both the good stuff from his past and the bad stuff. And straining forward to what was ahead, he was striving after the prize of knowing Jesus and being with him. And he's gonna build on these, th- these thoughts as we wrap up Philippians 3 today. We're gonna see Paul give us three great C words. These are just words that came to me as I was kind of trying to frame this section of, of the New Testament. So if you have a Bible or a web-enabled device, you can flip or tap your way to Philippians chapter 3, starting in, vis- in verse 15. And the first C, or the first great C word, is a great charge. Paul's going to give us a great charge connected with a great gospel. Paul writes this, starting in verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The charge that Paul gives is this. First, it's a call to unity. Let those of us who are mature think this way. The church is called to a unity of doctrine. Thinking and beliefs have huge ramifications. And Paul affirmed that here. What you think and what you believe matters. That's why we as a church spend so much time teaching. Because all throughout history, including today, there's always been issues related to thinking, doctrine, and truth. I mean, you look out into the world today and the churches that have deviated from sound biblical teaching either no longer exist or they've lost their gospel influence and they're dying. And so we have to be super tight with our thinking and our beliefs. And Paul just hammers on that here. Now, the word for mature that Paul uses in verse 15 is the same word that he used in verse 12 when he said he wasn't already perfect. He hadn't experienced perfection. And he knew that the moment he was with Jesus, he would be made perfect or complete. And that's what caused him to long to be with Jesus. The Greek word for for mature here is the same as for the word perfect from verse 12, and it's this word teleos. And what's interesting about verse 15 is that scholars differ on what Paul's getting at here. Like when you read uh, a a section of scripture, oftentimes you kind of have your own perspective because you're reading it from a Western perspective. But oftentimes when you actually look into something, you you discover that there's more going on than just what your kind of United States, you know, Western American mindset might give you. And so this is a place where having some good resources, it it was really helpful. One of those I want to offer to you is just a website that I found really helpful. It's sonniclight.com. And it's put together by a seminary professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Excellent resource. And what I like to do is I like to read what a couple of different scholars say about a topic. I really like to see what the different bodies of thought are on a particular verse, especially where there might be multiple interpretations or or bodies of interpretation out there. And so Paul is either addressing a group of people who shared his perspective or he was using irony and sarcasm to make a point. I love how one scholar frames the different thoughts on this passage. On the one hand, this is what he says. And you're going to see this is how a scholar writes. So I will actually translate this into normal English when we're done. He said this. They agreed that they were perfect in their understanding of their imperfection 
or in their desires to be perfected. And so how a normal person talks is like this. They agreed that they don't have it all together and desire to become more like Jesus. That's one kind of perspective on this. On the other hand, Paul could be, again, speaking with both irony and sarcasm, addressing a group of people who assumed they were already perfect. The the scholar Richard Mellick continues. He says, if so, he was calling them to admit their imperfect knowledge about such matters and accept his evaluation. In other words, Paul was saying, those of us who think they're perfect should think the way I do, that we aren't perfect, but rather we press on toward the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. So this scholar that I was referencing, he leans more toward the numbers, the, the second option, and I do as well. Instead of somehow thinking that perfection comes from outward conformity to the law, the law is like the Ten Commandments that we're looking at in Exodus 20. We just finishing that section up, Paul was pushing these people with irony and sarcasm to find true righteousness that only comes from embracing Jesus. Now remember what's going on in the situation. There's false teachers spreading false teaching. Paul had addressed them early in this chapter when he said, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those, those mutilators of the flesh. And again, he's going to address them again in verse 15 with a growing intensity as we kind of move through this section. These false teachers were not inside the church at Philippi, but their teaching was threatening the spiritual health of the church. And that's why Paul wrote what he wrote. He continued with verse 15. He said, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Now, Paul has a great perspective on his responsibility He knows that he can't force anyone to believe or hold to certain ways of thinking. God is the one who helps people see spiritual truth. It isn't with this, it's with this. Paul's role, just like the role you and I have, is to present what's true. God's responsible then for opening the eyes of the other person. And so here's one of the bigger problems that I've seen in the church over the past couple of decades. The church really struggles with responsibility. And oftentimes the church feels overly responsible and can even be pushy, pushy Christians. You might have experienced this in your life. You might be one of these people. Well-meaning for sure, but a real turnoff to people both inside and outside the church. Our goal is we wanna influence, right? But when we were pushy or even controlling, we tend to alienate people. By trying to make them see what's true, we actually could push them away from the truth, which is the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish. Paul gives us a great picture here of strong encouragement and teaching, and at the same time, a deep trust that God is the one who opens people's eyes to the truth. Verse 16, he continues, he says this, only let us hold true to what we have attained. That phrase, let us hold true, is the Greek word stokeo. And it carries with it the sense of an orderly walk or a a disciplined walk. It means to behave or to imitate, to go in a line or a row, to go in battle order, to be in line with or to walk by. This uh, scholar Richard Mellick says this, it carries overtones of a collective discipline of all walking in the same row or by the same measure. And so the Philippian church 
Paul was telling them collectively that they need to hold tightly to the gospel. That's what they had attained. Now, how do you know if, if, if I've attained that? How do I know if I've attained that? Well, it all comes down to what have you done with Jesus? You know, every Sunday we have a, a group of people that comes to New Hope, and I, I love it. We're, we're all over the place in our spiritual journey. Some people are kind of newer in their faith journey, and some people have been around for a long, long time, which is great. If you're here and you're kind of newer in your journey, you might be just trying to put the puzzle pieces together. I was at that point in my life, and I'll tell you what, it was during my college days that God kind of helped me see how this all fits together, and it changed my life. God the Son became Jesus the man, and his single-minded mission was to rescue and redeem humanity. Jesus came to rescue people from, from sin and from death and from hell. He came not to just rescue humanity. He came to rescue you. Like when you take it from like the world and you just think about your name, that's what Jesus came for. He came for you. Every person here must decide what they're gonna do with Jesus. You can't just ride the fence. A lot of times I'll sit down and share the, the gospel with somebody, which in the next couple weeks, Kyle is gonna be doing more of that training and teaching here. And I'm really looking forward to it. And when I get to the end of the, the, this, kind of this gospel message, a lot of times I, I try to help people see that you, you, you gotta land somewhere, right? And so I say like, you, you, you are either, you, you, you're either pregnant or, or you're not pregnant. You can't just be kind of pregnant. Usually I offend, I'll offend somebody here this morning some, somewhere in this, so you can just send an email to mark at nhchurch.com. <laughs> But really, there's no in-between. John wrote this in his gospel. He said, but to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so there's a response to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's to receive him as the forgiver of your sins, all your wrongdoing, and, 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 and Jesus wants to forgive all of it. And, and as the one who you now follow, as you believe in his name. To believe, Mark mentioned this a couple weeks ago, to believe in his name means both, it affects both our conduct and our confession. And so if you receive him and believe in him, he makes you a child of God. That's what it means to become a Christian. And so today you can only ride the fence so long. Receive Jesus. Today is the day to receive Jesus. Believe in his name and become a child of God. And, and, and the point of all that is this. When Paul says, only let us hold true to what we've attained, he's speaking to followers of Jesus who are to hold true to the gospel. Holding true means you add nothing to Jesus. It, it, it's not Jesus plus something. It's Jesus alone. If you're in Jesus, God has made you perfect. You have the full righteousness of Christ applied to you. The blood of Christ has washed you white. You are to hold true to what you've attained, a great charge and a great gospel. That's the first C. The second C is this, is that now Paul is gonna present us with a great challenge. This is what he wrote. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. One of the things you'll see in Paul's writing over and over again is he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Look at what he says here in 1 Corinthians. He says, uh, I urge you then, be imitators of me. 
Another place in 1 Corinthians, he says this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Another place in the New Testament, he, 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 wrote, he wrote this, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do, we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. And so the Apostle Paul, like, being an example wasn't optional. He saw this way of life as an extension of his teaching. You'll hear people say stuff like this, you know, um, like, more is caught than taught. And there's a lot of truth in that, right? Like, my kids sound like me. They have the same issues that I have because they caught that in my house. But there's a, there's a little nuance I want to add to that. I think that's a good thought, the more is caught than taught. But I'd nuance that a bit, and I'd say that our, our example actually illustrates our teaching. Where the fail comes in our lives is that we teach a certain truth or value, and then we deconstruct our teaching by the example we set for those around us. Now, I don't know about you, but that could sound a bit overwhelming. Like somehow you have to walk this razor edge, never fail. But the truth is we fail, right? I mean, we fail, we sin, we blow it. And, and, and a lot of times Christians don't like to talk about that, but the reality is that's what the gospel boasts about. I had a big fail in the last couple of weeks. And here's what you do when you fail. You confess your sin. See, the reality is people don't need somebody who's perfect because they're not perfect. They don't need a perfect example because they're not perfect. What they need is they need someone who's gonna help them make things right when they blow it because that's their example. That's, that's their life. You bring your sin into the light. You live out the gospel, the gospel that knows full well that you're a mess and that without Jesus, you would be without hope. And so that's what I did. I, I already received mercy from God when I became a Christian. I received mercy from God every, every morning. His mercies are new every morning, like Michael mentioned. But I had a chance to experience God's grace when I confessed my sin and I asked the other person to forgive me, and they did. I always tell people, preaching is easy. Living out what you preach is hard. It's easy to talk about the gospel producing joy in our lives regardless of what happens to you until your back goes out or the bottom drops out on your 401k, which it seems like ever since I've had a 401k, the bottom's dropped out on it. <laughs> or you face a trial with a coworker. I tend to be the trial for my coworkers. Or your neighbor doesn't mow their lawn in the month of May, the time of year the lawn needs the most mowing. And so when you experience a trial, when you go through a difficult situation, when life doesn't go the way you want it to, when you express joy in spite of whatever, that makes the teaching of God attractive to the world around you. People are looking for any handhold or foothold that they can get as they climb through the challenges that they have in their lives. And so as you live out the hope of the gospel, you show them that great handholds and great footholds exist. And so when we think about wh where people need an example, I love the list that Paul gives. 
in 1 Timothy 4. He wrote to young Timothy, a pastor, and he said this, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, life, faith, love, and purity. I memorized it in a different translation. Don't let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So what I want you to think about with me is where do you need to set an example for the people around you? Where do you need to grow in being an example? Like, where does your, what does your speech look like? Do you find yourself complaining a lot about your circumstances? Maybe for you, you need to give thanks out loud more often. Do you find yourself gossiping about others? Do you struggle with being kind with your words? Maybe you need to think about how you can become more of an encourager. How about your love? Do you sacrifice for others? Are you generous? Love is an action. What, what is actionable in your life as you think about your love for God and for other people? How about your purity? Are you pure in your interactions with the opposite gender? Are you pure in the way you navigate all the technology around you? There's a reason that I don't have social media on my phone because I don't trust myself. I want to be an example of, of purity, which leads us to our, our third C. So we started with a great charge connected with a great gospel. We looked at this great challenge that we have of being exa an example, like Paul was an example. Now we're going to look at our third one, which is a great contrast. What Paul's going to do here is contrast these false teachers who are outside of Christ with who we are as true children of God. Listen to what he wrote, verse 18. He said, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. The first observation I have here is Paul is in tears as he talks about this group of people. The only place in the New Testament that we see him write about being in tears over a group of people. And why does that stand out to me? Because when I think about enemies of the cross, what I want to do is I want to call down fire from heaven on them. Like I want judgment for them. And how does Paul respond? He responds with compassion and mercy. He was imitating our Lord, who wept over Jerusalem, Jerusalem when they rejected him. Jesus said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing Paul had concern and compassion for these people, these enemies of the cross. Why? Because Paul knew that our real enemy is unseen. The people are never the enemy. Our, we never, our, our struggle is never against flesh and blood, he wrote in another place in the New Testament. It's against the unseen forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so Paul never saw people as the enemy. They were enemies of the cross, and instead of anger and hostility, he responded with sadness and a soft heart. These were the false teachers that Paul, that, that, that what they did is they followed Paul around. 
and they sought to entice people away from the truth. These teachers were enemies of the cross, meaning that they not only refused to accept the gospel, it was more than that. They actively opposed the message of the cross with the goal of hindering the people that Paul was ministering to. Verse 19, Paul gave a list of four qualities that embodied who these people were. The first one was this. They, he said their end was destruction. Their eternal destiny was with, without repentance would be separation from God forever. Now that should cause us to weep. We should weep over the eternal destiny of the people around us who are outside of Christ. Two, he said their God is their belly. Dr. Melick makes this key point about who these people are in his commentary. He says this, since this is a Jewish context, which is really important, meaning the false teachers were part of that Judaizer group, the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh, this statement must refer to dietary laws and circumcision of which they were so proud. They'd become so preoccupied with kosher food that they spent more time contemplating that than thinking about God. They replaced the true worship of God with their belly. Three, they glory in their shame. They were focused on these dietary restrictions and they, and they were focused on circumcision. They boasted about circumcision. By talking about it in this way, they were glory, glorying in something that was supposed to be very private. Circumcision was a private matter. And the way they put it out there made it shameful. And so they gloried in their shame, Paul said. And all these things caused these false teachers to be puffed up, boastful, and just filled with pride. The last thing Paul said in verse, the fourth, fourth thing was, their minds were set on earthly things. It was like they had blinders on. And they could only think about the here and now. Instead of seeing that this is their temporary home, like Carrie Underwood sings, this was the, their one and only chance at life. Now here's where the contrast comes in. This is the great contrast, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I not only belong to Jesus, but we have a primary residence that is out of this world. Now as Americans, we, I don't think we really get this. Like, if we were born in this country and we're naturalized citizens already, we don't get this unless we had to somehow fight for our citizenship. But when ta Paul talked about um, this with the, this group of people, they got it instantly. They were proud of their Roman citizenship. And so when Paul talked about a heavenly citizenship, they connected the dots. Philippi was an outpost colony. And... and, and um, Paul wrote from the kind of the, the mothership of Rome, right, uh, the, of, of the Roman Empire, which was Rome itself. And so in the same way, the church was to be an outpost as well, with the, like the mothership of the church being heaven itself. It's interesting that really the whole contrast that Paul makes between the false teachers and the true children of heaven comes down to one thing, and it's Perspective. It's perspective. Reminds me of Colossians 3, where Paul wrote this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. It's perspective. Where, is your, where are your eyes set? He says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. So our eyes and our minds are set on 
heaven. Not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so how much do you think about being with Christ? I've asked that question every time I've, we've looked at Philippians because that theme just keeps coming up over and over again in Paul's writing. Are our lives fixated only on this life? Or are our minds focused on being with Christ? Which again, Paul said earlier in this letter, which would be, it's better by far. Are we people who long for the resurrection from the dead? Do we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Or are we people who are just focused on the here and now? Like we gotta get everything we can right now because this is all we have. Are we going after just money and, and um, things, you know, nice things? Or are we, are we, do we think about our travel plans? Is that what preoccupies our life? The bucket list. Oh my gosh. Talk to my parents about their bucket list. They're probably watching right now. Um, are we trying to live out our best life now? No way. Our best life is never now. I heard a Bible teacher say that the people who are living their best life now are people who aren't Christians. Because for them, there is no other life. This is all they've got. But that's not how it's going to be for us. We are citizens of heaven. Our true home is with Jesus. This isn't just a tangential thought for the Christian. Paul would say this was one of the highest ranking values in how a Christ follower thought. Now, we don't want to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, right? But that's not our struggle. Our struggle is that we're too comfortable with this place. Instead of longing for Jesus' kingdom to come on earth, we like this and we think it's all we got. And we're trying to live our best life now. And Paul would challenge us to be people whose lives are lived in stark contrast to those who live without Jesus. Keep reading. This is what he says. And from it, from heaven, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our best life is with Christ. We're to await his return. Another place in the New Testament says we're to long for his appearing. Why? Because when he returns, He's going to transform us. He's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his heavenly body. We're going to experience what we've longed for our whole lives. This is the, the fulfillment of the longing of every desire of your soul. And so as we close, which sea do you want to take with you as you leave? Like, our goal isn't just to have nice-sounding teaching where people say, oh, that was nice, you did a good job. We want to have something that we hold on to and apply to our lives. So the first C was a great charge connected with a great gospel. How could you be better equipped to understand what the gospel is all about? Well, my first thought was read the book of Romans. I don't know if you like homework, but like that would be a great thing to do this week. 
read Romans and just become better uh, um, uh, aware of like what the gospel is all about and how do we apply the gospel to our lives. We want to hold true to what we've attained. Okay. What if our application would be focused on the second C, which was a great challenge? The reality, again, is that all of us need to be an example to someone, right? And if you're a parent here, you are an example whether you like it or not. Like, I have my kids tell me stuff like, I'm watching you, Dad. Sometimes it's not always said with the best tone. But the reality is, as a parent, this is the best thing you can do. When you blow it, confess your sin to your kids and ask them to forgive you and say you're sorry and get really good at it because you're teaching them what the gospel is all about by the way you live your life. I can remember a lot from my childhood growing up and I can remember a lot of the things that were painful, but one of the things that really helped bring healing was when my parents asked for forgiveness and when they confessed their sin to me and they asked for, and they, and they asked, they, they apologized. So whether you're young or old, you could also look at what Timothy said, or Paul said to Timothy in 1 Tim, Timothy 4.12. Set an example for the believers. You could pick a, any of these in the way that you talk. How, do you wanna, how would you want to grow in your speech? The Bible actually says the best thing you can do is to talk less. So that might be your application. In the way you live your life, it's kind of all-encompassing. In the way you live out your faith, in the way you trust God. How about the way you love? We talked about that already. How do you sacrifice and serve and, and, and give? How about your purity? Paul wrote this, again, pre-internet, pre-social media, pre-iPhone. Purity has always been a challenge for all generations. You could be someone by the grace of God who sets an example for the people around you in the way that you live a pure life. What about the last C? How could you live out, how could you apply something from the, the idea of, of the contrast? Maybe for you today, you're going to start to learn to fix your gaze toward being with Jesus. I love that Colossians passage. That would be a great one to memorize. I was so thankful that when I was young, somebody encouraged me to memorize scripture. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, I'd put that down, I'd memorize it. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. How do you develop an eternal perspective? You invest in eternal things. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You put your treasure in the place of eternity and you will value eternal, eternal things. You'll develop an eternal perspective. Ask God to give you ways to invest in the eternal. And then my application, I, I put this down for me, is to grow in compassion for those who you would, I'd see as enemies of the cross. Like, I want to weep like Paul wept. Instead of feeling frustrated and angry, I want to feel sad. I want to I have a soft heart and ask God to grant them repentance like he granted me repentance. See, Paul showed us again that we can have joy regardless. Regardless of whether we have false teachers following us around trying to undo and undercut all the things that we're doing, we can be joyful people. Because once again, we're reminded that our joy is not tied to our circumstances, but it's connected to Jesus and the gospel. And so this week, let's fix our gaze on those things. Let's pray.
And Father, we give thanks to you today for the chance to, to look at your word, to, to again see how a life that's been impacted by the gospel is lived out. God, we thank you for the examples of people around us who have been faithful to you. God, we've sure learned a lot from those people and we, and we thank you for them. We, all, we also just thank you that we, we want to be people who hold tightly to the gospel. And so God, we pray that you would just continue the work that you started in us. That you would continue to, to forge us into people who are more like Jesus. It's a, it's a risky prayer to pray, God, but we would say, do whatever it takes to make us like your son. I pray all, all this in his name. Amen. Hey, well, thanks so much for spending part of your Sunday with us here at New Hope. Hope you have a great week.